And that's the latest from the WOR Newsroom. This is Russ Dunbar. Stay tuned for Gene Shepard. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. The world's largest outdoor salt water pool is now open at Palisades Amusement Park. There's free dancing, free circus acts, free parking, and admission to the park just 30 cents. $1,000 in merchandise is given away free every day of the week at Palisades Amusement Park. Monday, 1,000 cakes given away to the first 1,000 paid admissions, plus 1,000 bottles of instant tea. Tuesday at Palisades, 1,000 jars of peanut butter given away free. Every Wednesday, 1,000 free spaghetti dinners. On Thursday, there's 1,000 free bags of candy bars. Friday, 500 free roll packs of film, plus 1,000 boxes of cookies. On Saturdays, 1,000 jars of milk amplifier. And on Sundays, 1,000 bottles of bath salts are given away free at the Kitty Park. So come on over to Palisades Amusement Park. Free tomorrow, see the Earls in person. On Sunday, see the Chiffons free at Palisades Amusement Park. This is WORAM and FM, your RKO General Station in New York. A few grunts, a few groans, a new lovelier you. Jack LaLanne helps you look and feel your best. Weekday mornings at 9.30 on WOR-TV, Channel 9 in New York. very often that a guy really gets advice right down the line that really says it. Too often times we get, well, we get the kind, we get twice chewed cabbage. I don't chew my cabbage twice either by George. Anybody out there wants me to chew my cabbage twice is just going to have to go someplace else. Another spot on the dial, a friendlier spot on the dial, actually. <laughs> 
where they chew their cabbage twice and three times and four times and five times and six times and seven times and maybe even eight times. So it isn't it isn't very often. Oh, hey, why don't, don't both of you look away at the same time? You could scratch and watch here. Why 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 isn't it often that you get real advice? Listen to this advice. I'm sitting in the bus and next to me is a newspaper. And the news uh, don't cue it up yet. And the newspaper the newspaper is there next to me, and it's the New York Journal-American. And it's a Sunday. I didn't, you know, I never see the Sunday New York Journal-American, ever. And there it is, lying on the seat next to me. What's going on in there all of a sudden? It was a big hassle. Can, you, can, I, can I interrupt you two fellows? I'm just about to give a cue, Jack, okay? So, so <laughs> I'm sitting there, and there is the Sunday Journal-American, and a headline that stands out like it's made out of neon. Plan for future with compost pile. Well, that's the kind of future planning I, I kind of enjoy. So, hold it, 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 hold it there, hold it now. Now, 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 I want you guys to settle all your business in there by queuing stuff up and everything. You're already in there now to do the show? Everything's all set now, huh? Okay, I hate to interrupt all this stuff here. Yeah, I know. It's in there. I know, I know. But you're all ready now. Good. Now you're sure. All right, I'll just wait. You just go ahead and do whatever you want to do there. Finish the domino game, the whole business, and we'll... You just go ahead, cue it all up, get everything ready in there. Oh, yes, no, I, I believe in giving every man a chance. What do you mean? I know what business I'm in here. I'm in the engineering business. We're just waiting for everything to get all settled here now. Get all set there. Huh, Jack? Well, I can't hear what you own, say. Wow. That doesn't mean anything. How many time, How many years do you have to work here to know that I can't read what you say through here? This is not a two-way communication. If you have anything to say, put it up on the thing, write it down, hang it up on the mirror, okay? All right. Now, tell me when you're ready in there. We just sit here and wait. All set now? Fine. By George, I knew we'd get this radio station going eventually if we wait long enough. Yes, sir. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I'm sitting there and I'm planning for my future by thinking about maybe perhaps it isn't a bad idea to have a compost pile. Now, I think, really, if we're all going to admit it, that deep within our own souls, we all have our own compost heap. Actually, it's not a compost heap. The general American calls it a compost pile, but it's truly a compost heap. Now, uh, do you know what is it, any of you? Don't look at me so confused. Like, don't you know what a compost heap is? Well, why are you so worried about it? It's all right. I'm in charge. Everything's okay. Don't worry. It's terrible to be doing a show and everybody's... <laughs> it's not going to blow up. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's only radio. Nobody listening. Uh, nevertheless, no, seriously, this is, this is a little wired thing we do here. From one room to the next, we break in on each other. That's right. You should learn how to do that. So all the time you've been here, now all of a sudden you got the things in your eyebrows. Like, you know, don't get backstage. Believe me, that's for the backstage business at the Mary Martin shows, all that worried stuff. And that's for television. That's not for radio, right? 
Well, nevertheless, let's get back to the theme here, which is a program we're trying to do here. We've already seven minutes. We haven't gotten into it yet. But uh, I, I, I'm thinking, though, I'm thinking about this compost heap. And uh, I believe, you know what is it? Of course, you know what the value of a compost heap is, don't you? Well, you take stuff, see, and you pile it all up, and it rains on it, the stuff. You leave it out in the backyard. Now, the backyard can be the backyard of your soul, you know, back of all the stuff you're really doing. And it's, it sits out there in the backyard, and the sun beats down on it, the rain comes down, the wind blows on it, and the sun comes down again, and the rain comes down, and then it... So what, what the, you just be calm, and it just keeps going on and on and on, oh boy. On and on and on, the sun keeps going, and then eventually something begins to happen down around the bottom of the compost heap. It starts to ferment. Little things grow in it, like little mushrooms, little tiny microscopic mushrooms. These little fungus, fungi, fungi, fungu. And they grow, see, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And then one day, it's steaming. It's warm. It's rich. And anything that comes along grows on it. You know what I mean? Grows right there. And I suspect that within each one of our souls, there's a little compost heap. <laughs> And it's fermenting. Now, sometimes, of course, uh, a man does not want that compost heap to go all the way. Let me tell you about the people who grew, who grew a compost heap, the likes of which I have never seen in my born days. Now, you people who live in the city or who live in polite suburbs. Now, there's a polite suburb, and then there's the country. Now, you people who live in polite suburbs perhaps don't understand that there is another kind of suburb. Perhaps the, in, the impolite suburb. Now, Westchester is certainly a polite suburb. Bucks County is a polite suburb. No matter how far out in the country you get in Bucks County, it's polite, right? I mean, even the farms are polite around there. Even the cows out in Bucks County are somehow, well, they're literate cows. Oh, yes, you know, you don't, they're not like cows running around Indiana, I can tell you that. They've got a different look on the face, and everything is different. And, and the chickens over, over in Bucks County, a very different kind of chicken. I, I, you know, I spent a little time out around Lambertville there one summer, and I was amazed to find that the chickens out in that area have taste, discretion. No, they're really not the same as really impolite, raw, in the nature, in the rough kind of stuff, like the real impolite suburbs. Well, I grew up just outside of Chicago, you know, and, uh, and in Chicago, just outside, it's kind of a suburb, when nobody even knew it was a suburb, you know, it was just a place hanging on the edge of Chicago there, and there would be a slow fallout. You know, everybody around here is sort of amazed about fallout. Well, where I, where I was born, we lived in a sea of fallout. Fallout was our natural way of life because we lived within a half a mile of the steel mill. Well, the fallout that came out of the clouds there, actually it was the clouds themselves around there, the fallout was a slow drift down, a continual falling, just a slow drifting down of red blast furnace dust. Now, I don't know what red blast furnace does to your lungs. It doesn't make much difference. I do know that every car in that neighborhood, as far as I can remember back, was a vague red color. No matter what color you bought, no matter what color you painted your car, it became red. Very vagueish kind, sort of a strange kind of red. You know that crummy kind of cloth they used to have, that, that sort of Celanese stuff, where if you looked at it at a certain angle, it was kind of iridescent red, you know that kind of cloth? 
it would be blue, but you get a little angle and it would kind of have paisley color. Well, that's the way everything was, and I'm sure that our souls were that way, and so were our lungs. And I know that once in a while, when you'd see a real good neighbor, a, a genuine native of that area, when he blew his nose, or, or he coughed loudly, big chunks of the stuff would come out. And that way, he would be just clearing the pipes a little bit of the blast furnace crud, and he would be good for about another two or three weeks, and then he would get another one. They used to call it the blast furnace croup. And, and yeah, everybody got it. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more serious than, say, cancer. And uh, you'd live along there, and every, everybody, about every three weeks, your, your, all your pipes would clog up inside. You'd feel like you have a cold, but actually you don't have a cold. You just, your pipes would clog up. And you would find that you haven't breathed, say, for about four hours. And your eyes start bugging out. And it's funny how, how non-breathing creeps up on you. It doesn't just, you know, jump out at you. You don't suddenly stop breathing. You just slowly stop breathing. And then after about four hours of not breathing, your eyeballs start to bug out. And you start to sweat a little bit. And you know you've got the blast furnace croup. Well, you're, you're cleaning the pipes. Big chunks of the stuff fly out and roll around on the floor. And, and you blow it into your handkerchief and you squirt it out of your ears. And then for another couple of weeks after this siege, which usually lasts about four or five days, you, you get it all out, or at least you move it around. I don't think you ever get it out. You just move it around a little bit down there. You're for about four or five days you do this, and then after that you're ready to go back and get another coating. Well, it was this kind of a neighbor. Now, is this a polite suburb or not? I mean, this is not Bucks County, you see. And yet, on the other hand, there were trees. Funny, uh, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood where they had nothing but red trees for years. They had the olive red trees, red birds. They had the red sun. Uh, everything was red there. Did I have to tell you about the time the, 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 the big cracker blew up? Uh, and, and, and coated all the cars for 14 counties around with kerosene. Yeah, they had a, car you know, a cracker. Oh, yeah, yeah, they got a cracker down here. You know what a cracker is. Uh, you, you see them on the turnpike, Jersey Turnpike, when you're going through all the, uh, the refineries there. Well, let me tell you about those refineries. You see, on one side, we were bracketed. On one side was Inland Steel, where I lived, and on the other side was Sinclair Oil. Now, that was, uh, so we were bracketed right in between, and right behind us was shell oil. And a little bit counterclockwise, if you look to your left, was Phillips Petroleum. And then running right through it was the Griselli Chemical Company. Now, I don't know what it was that the Griselli Chemical Company made there, but it was awfully fragrant. It was really rich and ripe. And so all of these outfits going full blast on a summer day, made for an atmosphere that you could not, you people here couldn't comprehend it, it was serious, you just couldn't comprehend it. And then when you, when you decided to go down to the beach, you know, to get some fresh air, the beach was right next to the Lever Soap Company, where they were doing the first experiments with detergents, which also was quite smelly, and it was a very smelly process. And right next to them was an outfit called Amazo. Did you ever hear of Amazo? Well, Amazo not only makes that corn oil, but something happens when corn oil gets old. And, uh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And what they would do, they would pour all the old corn oil into the lake. And, and uh, Lever House, yeah, Lever Brothers there would pour all the old detergents and used soap suds into the lake. The Phillips Petroleum people would pour all the old tar into the lake. 
And inland steel would pour about 40 million tons of slag in there every couple of days. And that's where we would go swimming. Well, I'll tell you, if, you, if, if you've been reading the accounts of how hard it is to see at the depth where the thresher is buried, well, I can only tell you that in six inches of water out there, you could walk around and not see your toes. <laughs> it's just like, speaking of Stygian depths, this is WORAM and FM, New York. Well, so, so it was that, that, that is a very impolite suburb, as you can see, uh, very, very impolite. You know, it's funny, I, I knew a guy who had a boat, and he would take his boat, in Lake Michigan this is, he would take his boat out there, you know, and, and around here, when a guy has a boat, and over the summertime, he chips the barnacles off it, I guess, in the bottom, you know, and the barnacles, and the, and the, the sea crud gets on the bottom there, and a little seaweed and, and stuff. Well, when a guy, it's funny, when a guy would take his boat out of the water around Inland Steel there, he would take a blast of one of these the little torches, you know, a little acetylene torch, or, or he'd get a blowtorch, and he would just braze off the bottom, see, and melt all the old lead and tar and crud off of it, and it would come flying off. And then he would take a, he'd take a coal chisel and chip the blast furnace coagulant off, chunk, 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 great scales flying off, just clunks of stuff. And then he'd get down to the bottom, and then there would be a thick layer of, of used lever house detergent. That would come off. You say, oh, yeah, it's a very interesting neighborhood. So <laughs> the reason I'm pointing this out to you, you can understand that we were used to fragrances. Uh, our, our atmosphere, believe me, you know that people out there, you could grow plants just in the air out there. Yeah, oh, yeah, very easy. There was no problem. There was enough nutrients and various, yes, various uh, fertilizers, if I may use the expression, in the air that you had no trouble. I mean, guys would... You'd see, if, if you didn't wash your ears, like, say, for three or four days, there'd be little green shoots come out. Uh, oh, yes, it was a very fertile neighborhood. Uh, terrible. Guys would have stuff growing on the tops of their cars if they left their car out for a week or two, you know. Truly, uh, that's the truth. Did I tell you about my kid brother with the plants growing on the top of his Model A? <laughs> out, of the, out of the... Yeah, my Uncle Carl had the problem with the plants growing on the top of... It was the neighborhood that did it. So it was just the way it was. So, so life was very interesting around there. Very different from here. Very, very, very different. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is to give you a preamble or a preface to a compost heap that I saw once that transcended all other compost heaps that you can possibly imagine. Now, people out in Bucks County, when they're thinking of a compost heap, you know, they go down to the garden and hoe shop. You know, that kind of thing. It's spelled with two P's and an E, shoppy. And they go down there, you know, in their little buckskin pants and, and their, their Clark shoes, and, you know, their little desert booties, and they get these little pearl-handled rakes and stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you, Daddy, we had a compost heap once grow up in our neighborhood that was, that was the, it stops them all. I mean, you really learn all about atomic fallout and everything from this compost heap. We had moved into the neighborhood a real basic family. Because, of course, the steel mills, you know, there's nothing but basic families live around steel mills. This is, a, this is not a place for, you know, they're ba very basic people. They just come there and they, they, they work on the slag heap. <laughs> Boy, anybody that works on the slag heap is very, very basic. Uh, or they work on the 14-inch merchant mill. And their life is, a, is like, you'd, you'd be surprised, you know, you, you think people who work in a giant industry are removed from reality or, or are removed certainly from the soil. These guys were closer to the soil than a radish. No, really, it's the truth because uh, because making steel is a very basic thing. I think anybody who's involved in doing anything basic is connected with the with the soil, whether he knows it or not. You know, 
So these guys are out there in the slag heap in the, in the scrap yards and out on the yard scales and they're slugging away out there against the elements and the wind is blowing and the, the rain is coming down and the sleet is hailing and year in and year out they wear these corduroy hats with earmuffs down. <laughs> year in and year out. It's funny, you see these old duffers, they get so that the corduroy hat is part of their, you know, part of their whole, their whole being, their skull and everything. They take showers and everything in them. And, and uh, you'd see, yeah, you'd see an old guy going down, doing, going past the house. He's on his way going to church or his own funeral or something, and he's got his corduroy hat pulled down. Because you see out there, you never know. You just never know what's going to come out of the sky. So you wear a hat all the time, and you wear you wear the the safety shoes, you know, with the with the steel bottoms and all that. <laughs> I I used to sit in the Orpheum Theater with my safety shoes on. It was the only time I've really comfortably sat in a movie house. You sit there, you know, and these big fat ladies are going past to get the seat that's inside. You just let them tromp right on you. You just sit there and clunk on the safety shoe, and you say, it's all right, madam. And she goes, clunk on the other one. And you just sit there with a big fat smile on your face. Either that or you pretend like your foot is busted. Oh, 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 my foot, my foot. Oh, oh. And then she feels real terrible, and you're sitting there with your iron shoes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm telling you this for. It's Saturday night, or it's Friday night. What is it, Friday? Oh, I don't know why I'm saying this. Well, anyway, the compost heap. Yeah, well, there was a very basic, a very, very, very basic Lithuanian family moved into our neighborhood. Now, the Lithuanians are very interesting people. If you ever lived around them, they're really not Polish, and uh, they make a very great distinction that they're not Polish, and the Polish people make a very great distinction that the Lithuanians are not Polish, and uh, they're not Bulgarians, they're Lithuanians. And yet most uh, Polish people speak Lithuanian, and most uh, Lithuanian people speak a kind of Polish, and they, they kind of look to the outsider like Polish people, the very, very definite people, very definite, and very, very basic people, at least the Lithuanians I saw. And, and you know, we, we like to, it's funny, you never see television shows, you always see TV shows about Hungarians, you know, or, or Italians. Uh, and they're always singing and playing and with the guitars. Let me tell you, a uh, Saturday night in a Lithuanian, whoo, the Lithuanian American Hall on 134th Street in Chicago in Roseland. Oh, oh, more hollering, more cabbage, more yelling, more guys flying through windows. <laughs> and they, they would every year they would have the Miss Lithuanian Beauty Queen. Well, they have a very peculiar idea of beauty apparently in Lithuania. Because the really lovely chicks would always be the has-beens, and they would always vote for some real fat girl. Real big fat girl, a big, tough, angry chick, and she's out there jumping around doing the shotish or whatever it is they do, and, and I would be introduced to somebody. That's Miss Lithuania. Miss Lithuania! <laughs> They're wild, interesting people. So anyway, there was this family of Lithuanians moved in our neighborhood. And, uh, of course, I had these, these all, all my buddies were Polish, all kinds of Hungarian friends, Polish, Swedish, a couple of Germans, but mostly Swedish, Polish, and uh, Hungarian. We're all around this neighborhood there. And suddenly this Lithuanian crowd moved in. Well, apparently the Lithuanians, to begin with, make a kind of wine out of turpentine. It's a, yes, it's a highly explosive wine. It's a deep purple color. And I don't know the name of it, but they used to drink it a lot. They poured it on their salads. They, they poured it on their sandwiches. They dunked their salami in it. 
They painted their cars with it. They watered their lawns with it. They did everything with this wine. And, it, 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 of course, immediately the house is a very fragrant house. It was about four doors down from us. <laughs> and luckily, these guys moved in in the wintertime. We didn't know what was in store for us. They moved in in the winter. Well, now, the winter out there is like iron. Nothing moves. Absolutely nothing. The, the ground is frozen. It's up to your, up to your kneecaps. And it is really rough, and the wind is howling, and nobody really sees anybody else because everybody's got a cap, you know, pulled down over his ears. He's got a mackinaw up around his ears, and he's got great big boots on. So Lithuanians look like Polacks, Polacks look like Hungarians, Hungarians look like Swedes, and all the Swedes look like Shepherd. So, you know, you don't, you don't make any contact. You're just walking around in the wind. Well, you begin to separate the sheep from the goats in the summertime. That's when people become really what they are, you know. The winter battens everybody's hatches down. So around about, I'd say, roughly April, or even earlier, right as soon as the ice starts to fall off of the streetcar tracks and stuff, this crowd, just like the Polish people are going around, this crowd is going out. They have a big, fat mother. Most of these families have a big, fat mother. The Polish have a big, fat mother. And uh, she always was wearing a big shawl over her head and is kind of stooped and wears big shoes. And what they do is walk around in the middle of the afternoon, you see them, and they go up and down the alleys, and they have a cart. They're pulling this cart, and you never know quite what the cart is all about. But, you know, getting getting back to this to this crew, this somehow this this uh, maybe it's because he seems to be a very basic type person, among other things. But uh, speaking of the basic people, getting back to these uh, Lithuanians, funny funny crew. Uh, at least I, I enjoy them. I got to know them very well. They lived about four doors down. But right about this time of the year, a little earlier, they took to running around out in the back in the alleys with little carts. Now, <laughs> this is a thing that the Polish people do, too, at least the ones that I've come into contact with. And probably these were people of a peasant stock. Anyway, they, they would go around with a little cart, and I would ask Bolas, who was my, my, my Polish friend, Bolek, I would say, Bolek Rutkowski, and I would say, uh, Bolas, what is your mother doing with a cart? And there'd be a pause, and he says, I don't know, she goes out with a cart. And I'd say, well, Bolas, what does she get with a cart? What? She's picking up wood, firewood. I'd say, Bolas, you don't have a fireplace. Well, that's right, she got firewood, never know. Well, now, you see, these people live so close to the soil that they never know when everything might collapse and they're going to be living in a mud hut. And so they want plenty of firewood. <laughs> so they, they go out and pick up sticks and stuff. Well, well, this, this Lithuanian family, strangely enough, was not picking up sticks. We did not realize it until roughly about, I would say, oh, possibly, uh, oh, perhaps uh, about the middle of June. Was it, began, it really began to get ripe. What this family... <laughs> there were about nine brothers and about nine sisters. There were at least four mothers. And there were two short, fat fathers, both of whom always wore vests and white shirts, buttoned up to the top. This thing, you know, with the white shirts buttoned up to the top with sleeve garters and black pants and black hats. And so they're always going out with the carts. Well, now, as I pointed out, the neighborhood was a very ripe neighborhood. This neighborhood had oil smells. You know, it's funny, when I drive through, when I go on the turnpike and I get in there with Sinclair and Esso and all those places, it's like, it's like smelling a perfume from an old girlfriend. It's funny. <laughs> this is just a bare, bare approximation of it.
You have no idea how it is out there in that area of northern Indiana. In fact, I knew chicks, believe me. I knew chicks when I was going to high school, you know, take, going out to proms and stuff. I would take a chick all the way into the Sherman Hotel or the Collegiate Room or places like the College Inn, and we'd be dancing around, and my romantically my head is buried in her blonde tresses, and all I'm smelling is S.O. It's just, you know, it's just, and it's just it's so very romantic, you know, I can smell Griselli and everything around her. And I'd, I'd say, Esther Jane, you're such a wonderful girl. And, of course, she's, she's got her head nuzzled down on my, on, my, on my horsehair coat, and she's got it buried in there, you know. And all she is smelling, of course, is Philip 66. <laughs> that is a perfume of life out there. So, so everybody is living this way. Well, then suddenly, about, I would say, about the middle of May or the beginning of June, a new aroma began to creep into the neighborhood. And it was the, it was the topper. It was the King Kong of stinks. It really went all the way out. <clears throat> it went out and on and on and on. And nobody could figure it out. And the word was around, the word was around that they were doing some very special experimenting down at Sinclair on a new kind of bug juice that was supposed to kill big ants. <laughs> and so people would, and it was getting wilder and wilder and wilder until finally, about the middle of June or the early part of July, the air was actually purple, actually purple. And then it began to come out. The truth came out. This Lithuanian family had been picking up some very interesting stuff in their little carts, all kinds of interesting stuff. In that neighborhood, there were all kinds of things, like there were goats, there was a camel that lived down at the end of the street. Did I tell you about Thurston's camel? It lived down at the end of the street. Yes, Thurston the magician lived down at the end of the street where I was. There was a kid there. That big Victorian house had a camel in his garage. Well, these Lithuanians had apparently made some really good connections. They had connected. They had scored in about 19 different ways. You see, apparently in Lithuania, everybody has a compost heap against the eventuality, I guess. Well, these guys had scored with a compost heap like nobody ever saw in Lithuania. I mean, how many camels are in Lithuania? You know, there were goats. There were every. <laughs> there was a. There was a. There was a Kodiak bear that was in the little zoo. Oh, they had all kinds of stuff. Well, anyway, by the middle of July, you cannot comprehend what that compost heap was like. Well, among other things, these guys planted in their backyard sunflowers. Now, that's something they don't do around here. In the Midwest, they plant gigantic sunflowers. These guys grew sunflowers that were so big, the kids were scared of them. They had sunflowers that were like seven stories high. I can't express it. They had, they had blooms on them that were about as big around as a bushel basket. They had seeds that you could carry around in a shoulder holster, you know? Gigantic things in there hanging up. And they also grew goldenrods for some nutty reason. They had goldenrods that were as big as the trees, and all because of the compost heap. Now, everybody around there had been yelling about the compost heap. Well, then they began to see what was coming out of that backyard. They had a fence about a head high, and you'd see these tremendous things. To up. They had corn stalks. Believe me, they had corn stalks that would reach all the way to the second balcony of the Paramount Theater here. Great big son of a guns! And the compost heap, of course, is getting riper and riper and riper and riper. Until one day, it be, the inevitable happened, of course. The neighborhood is up in arms. Everybody's going around with a petition to get rid of the compost heap in the Lithuanian backyard. Well, 
we had a great neighborhood. They were very early demonstrators. I think this is what a European neighborhood does. They were demonstrating against all kinds. And the very first thing, this is one of the first things I remember, was the demonstration against the Lithuanian compost heap. Well, they went back there, and the police showed up to do something about the compost heap. And the old lady is out on the front porch crying. And the police are there. They have a, you know, the police cars out there, and the cops are there. And it was all there is in every neighborhood. There is always one, one rotten son of a gun who calls the fuzz. There is always one person who's always, as soon as there's a little argument, you know, three doors down, I'm calling the police. Now cut it out. I'm calling the police. Well, the cops were making the run to our neighborhood regularly. We never did find out actually who it was who was always calling the cops. There were rumors that Mrs. Anderson was doing it, but I never believed it because I hung around there. There were other rumors about Mrs. M.D. Now, I would have believed it about Mrs. M.D. She had a furtive look in the eye, but the cops would arrive always at the worst moments. Well, the cops arrived, and they're out there in front of this place, and that neighborhood, of course, smells to high heaven with the oil, with the gas, with the, with the steel mill, with Griselli, but now it is purple with the compost heap. And this is what was so sad about it. The little old lady is out there, and the, the, the boys are out there. You know, nobody really knew them because nobody really spoke Lithuanian. And the whole crowd is out there yelling and hollering, and the policeman is trying to talk with them, the big bear-like cop, you know. And the neighbors are walking around looking around. You know, they're all looking the other way, and the old lady is crying. And the next thing we know, all the brothers are out in the back there, and they're shoveling up the compost heap, and they're putting it in the big bags. And the city has sent around one of the big city street cleaning trucks, you know, where they take care of all this stuff. And they're removing the Lithuanian compost heap. And apparently, Lithuanian, now I don't know any, I don't know much about Lithuanian home life or about peasant life in general. But apparently, this is a very, very basic thing they were doing. It was like removing away, taking off the top part of the soil, which they look upon as the one place where your roots go in and which so you can survive in. So all the Lithuanians are out there crying and hollering, and the brothers are real tough guys, you know, the big square Lithuanian job. And they're yelling, and they're shoveling with the spades, and they're, boy, what stuff they're shoveling. You never saw anything like it, because after about four months out there in the rain and the sunshine and everything, everything had little flowers on it. It had flowers on it. It had green fuzz on it. It had moss. It had, it had all kinds. And they're shoveling away out there in the banks, and the garbage men are throwing it in, and the guys are all looking away and they got claws over their mouths you know you can see <laughs> these garbage guys are used to everything but boy they never saw anything like it <laughs> they're shoveling it in they're trying to get it away and they're swearing and lifting away and they're yelling and they're looking around at the neighborhood you know they know they've been undone by somebody in the neighborhood and they're all looking around the neighborhood you can just see them their eyes are steel blue and they're throwing the stuff out and they're knocking down the sunflowers and they're knocking down the corn they're just showing you they don't care anymore about life they're knocking down the, the golden rod, and they're knocking down the, the beets and the tomatoes, and they're shoveling this stuff. And the little old lady has got her has got her long apron. She's she's crying up there, and the and the cops are just standing there, stony faced. You know what are you going to do? And they're you know what are you going to say? And and the garbage men are shoveling in, and then slowly the garbage truck. Down goes the garbage. Down goes the thing right down the street, the compost heap and the whole business. And they're all crying on the porch. And that night, 
That night, they had the most rip-roaring, go-to-hell party you ever heard in your life. Apparently, they decided, well, there's no use to live. They're drinking all the wine and yelling and hollering and busting the windows. And three days later, they move out of the neighborhood. The compost heap. And so, I can only repeat to you the New York Journal-American Sunday, May 19, 1963, advice to all of you out there who feel that life somehow has a, has a solid bedrock layer of quicksand under it, who are not really making contact with your fellow man. Plan for your future with a compost pile. Plan for your future. All together now, gang, let's sing. That what is this he's playing? Right, crying out loud. That's the Lithuanian national anthem. While you're on it now, I would like to do a commercial. We have with us the paper book gallery. <laughs> it's a funny business. You know, I, I'm I'm really sorry for people, and there are millions of them, who who never grew up in a neighborhood where you came into contact with every known national culture. Really, I'm really sorry for people that, who haven't, because so many of them, <clears throat> apparently their, their ideas of these various countries and people, come from stereotypes they see in the movies. And many of the stereotypes never show up in movies. How many times have you seen a Lithuanian in a movie? That's right. Well, there were a lot of them in our neighborhood. How many of you have ever seen a real live Ukrainian in action in the steel mill? That's a great crowd. Really? Boy, they are really basic people. You know that they make, that the Ukrainians make some of the best steel workers in the world? Are you aware of that? That, uh, that the Polish, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder how many people, of course, very few people seem to know much about the uh, traditions of the steel world. Uh, one of the traditions of the steel world, of course, are you aware that the, that the prototype, the Paul Bunyan of steel workers in America, and in fact all over the world, but mostly in America as far as I know, is a pole. Are you aware? And I will give you a brass figly with bronze oak leaf palm if you can give me his name. He's the Paul Bunyan. He, he is a legendary steel worker. Now, whether he ever lived or not, nobody knows, but he's a legendary steel worker. You know, like they tell you about stories of Paul Bunyan and his great blue ox, you know, babe. You know about Paul Bunyan. This is a legend, you see. Uh, just like Casey Jones is a legendary railroad engineer, well, the, the, uh, the legendary steel worker is a pole. Go ahead, go ahead, and, and see, if, see if anybody calls it in. Go ahead, tell, tell her you want to, you go ahead, go on, go on, go on, go on, snap it up. Come on, come on, come on, move. Uh, <clears throat> because because that's, that's, that, that plays a great part in American uh, labor folklore. Uh, another thing about American labor folklore is you don't really hear much of it Done in uh, in the uh, in the world of the folk singer. Now he thinks he's doing this when he does stuff like John Henry and he he does things like uh, uh, a few little minor. But he's not really not not really scratching the surface. I have heard some steel workers folk songs. They're just songs that you know the steel workers about steel mills that that uh, just are absolutely great. They're really wildly thrilling. Very very thrilling. Uh, about great disasters in the blast furnace, you know. <laughs> and there, there is one great folk song about this hero, about this hero, about how when he was working on the rolling mill, 
and they had a big disaster, and he grabbed this, this great big rod, this great rod that was coming through, red-hot rod, grabbed it with his bare hands, and uh, oh, that's, that's a real great folk song. Now, very, I, I don't see much of this. Oh, well, let's get on with the commercials here. Let's go, let's go before we do anything. We have the paper book gallery with us tonight, and if you're going to make the village scene, I would like to suggest that you drop into the paper book gallery, which is at 391 Sixth Avenue, down down just off of Eighth Ave, Eighth Street, rather in the village, 399. Excuse me, not 391. 399, just off of Eighth Street in the village, right next to the Howard Johnson, and they have a, a tremendous collection of prints. Uh, but but really, what you should go there for is for itself, itself. I, I you know to go there for something fine, but they have prints down there that they're selling for a buck, which everywhere else in town are like. Six dollars, three ninety-five, four ninety-five, seven dollars, and they have many prints which nobody else has. They have a tremendous collection, for example, of foreign magazines. Great collection of foreign magazines, and uh, it's it's I think one of the most interesting stories in all of New York. It's truly a New York phenomenon. It's the paper book gallery. They're open on the weekend and they're open till one o'clock in the morning. It's at three ninety-nine Sixth Avenue, just off A Street, right in the heart of the village, the real swinging village. Yeah, and now while we're on the subject of the village, I would most uh, respectfully like to recommend, as a restaurant, the Mandarin House. Magnificent food, really. And uh, there's two of them. There's Mandarin East up on 2nd Avenue, just uh, north of 57th Street. That's, that's uh, uh, a beautiful little jewel of a restaurant. It's, uh, it's an interesting variation from Mandarin House, which is down on 13th Street. But if you'd like to try the basic restaurant that uh, specializes in Mandarin food and Shanghai food, I would like to suggest Mandarin House on 13th between 6th and 7th in the heart of the village. It's a beautiful restaurant. The food is superb. And they have a bar, and they're open on the weekends. And if you're coming in town on the weekends, it's a great place to go on a Sunday afternoon for dinner. It's, uh, but I would suggest you call them before you go down there to make a reservation. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. You never heard the name, did you? Anyway, it's Mandarin House, okay? There, one of the listeners knew. And I used to sit there. It was funny. A little skinny type, you know. <laughs> and they really do sing these folk songs about this guy. He is a great legendary character in the steel mill, and he is a... Polish steel worker. Uh, the Poles are great steel workers. And are you aware, this might be of some interest to you, that all over the world the Americans are the great steel mill technicians? Oh, yes. That uh, steel mills uh, all over the world, for example, a lot of the guys that I knew at one time when I was a kid working in the steel mill got a call from India. And they all went to India to set up the uh, steel mills in India because the techniques and the, the technical prowess of the American steel mills is second to none anywhere else in the world. Now, specialty steels, what country can you tell me is, is uh, the, the country for the specialty steels? Uh, that's another story, too. But that is not, yes, yeah, Sweden. You're right. It's Sweden. But that is not related to the big mass steel works that America really is uh, the tops in the world in. Now, uh, this is something that Russia has been wildly trying to catch up with us in, but very few people know that the lead that the Russians have in space, uh, which is considerable, as you know, we have in something else. Yes, uh, steel techniques. 
we are way out ahead of a lot of people in this field. And hardly anybody says anything about it. You know, as though this is nothing. But believe me, anybody who knows about basic, the basic world of making and putting things together knows that this is a lead far greater than any lead that has to do with going to the moon. But uh, you, you want to know his name? Hold it up there, Lee, so that so that Eddie can see it. That's right, Joe Majarak. Joe Majarak, <laughs> a big Polish steel worker, and he is the Paul Bunyan of the whole steel world. And I'll tell you one night, some night, I'll tell you, I'll bring my guitar in here, and I'll tell you about, I'll, I'll sing the song of Joe Majarak and the breakdown of the big 14-incher. That's a great song about how Joe Majerock himself, with his own hands, became the roll in the rolling mill. With his own hands, he rolled the steel out, white-hot steel. They had to make their quarter. And Joe Majerock leaped into the breach, and he ground that steel down with his own hands. That great, fantastic... Oh, you want to hear the rest of it? <laughs> WOR Radio, your station for news. Something old, something new. That's Joe Franklin's memory lane every weekday afternoon at 12.30 on Channel 9. You'll meet some of the best-loved personalities in show business and many bright new faces as well. Enjoy an hour with Joe Franklin, his old-time movies, nostalgic music, famous guests on memory lane. Weekday afternoons at 12.30 on WOR-TV Channel 9. Next, America's favorite all-night show, Long John Neville. This is WOR AM and FM, your RKO General Station, New York.